This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The moral cost, the psychic cost, the racial trauma embedded and inscribed on our genes is real and calculable. We live in a society that has been saturated with racism and the scars of racism, the scars of racial brutality. So on that, we are in complete agreement. But there's more to be said. I'm doing pretty well. And the question is, right now, should our polity try to funnel resources to me as opposed to somebody, let's say, whose folks swam across the Rio Grande 10 years ago? Hi, everybody. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. And today's debate, we're looking at the question of reparations for the legacy of slavery and how that can be done and whether it should be done in the form of restitution using direct cash payments. Now, in South Africa, the government paid $85 million directly to the victims of apartheid. Germany paid $89 billion to survivors of the Holocaust. The nation of Colombia, after a decades-long war, gave victims $23 billion. But in the United States, the idea of using cash payments to partially, at least, redress the wrong incurred by more than 200 years of slavery on North American soil has long been seen as an outlier idea, way outside the mainstream, until now, this moment we're in. We have a senior Biden advisor reportedly saying that the White House will start moving on reparations for the sin of slavery now. And Congress is again discussing a commission to study how such reparations could be done and also whether cash transfers could and should be part of it. Some say this movement is long overdue, that reparations are important to begin addressing the moral injury that slavery inflicted. Others say there is no way that this can work, that direct payments to African-Americans could divide the community, could exaggerate racial tensions and prove impossible to administer, while also doing little to address the deeper legacies of slavery. So in the context both of this history and also in this current climate where the issue is definitely moving up the agenda, we've decided to debate the question of reparations, or at least one slice of it. We're going to be looking at this question of whether checks for the recipients are the way to go. We're doing it in our agree-to-disagree format, in which it's more of a conversation among people who disagree on part of the issue, but allows for lots of room for agreement, because it's that kind of issue that requires nuance. I want to welcome our two debaters to the conversation. First, Randall Kennedy, who is a law professor and also a previous debater at Intelligence Squared. So I want to say, Randall Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us again at Intelligence Squared. Thank you. And our second panelist is Cornell William Brooks, a lawyer and former NAACP CEO and president, and now a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Cornell William Brooks, welcome to Intelligence Squared. It's good to be with you. So as I said, we, we want to have a, a, a nuanced conversation recognizing that there's a lot that the two of you will agree upon. It, it, this is not one of those zero-sum debates where we've done in the past where we've taken on issues like ban college football, zero-sum, yes or no. We're really looking at reparations and how they can be implemented as opposed to whether they should be implemented in the broad sense, but at this narrow specific issue of whether the example of South Africa paying cash and Germany paying cash is one that will work in the context of redressing uh, the wrong of American slavery. So uh, I'll start with you, Cornell, on the question of whether direct payments to African-Americans would be among the most effective means of addressing the legacy of slavery. What is your position on that? My position is that reparations, as in reparatory justice, including restitution and cash payments, is absolutely necessary to address the racial wealth gap, but also the moral recognition gap of slavery, neo-slavery, and the ongoing effects of America's past in the present. Thank you. And Randall Kennedy, your thoughts on the same question. I am not an enemy of reparations, but I have deep concerns about it. Uh, one, the opportunity cost. I think it's highly implausible that this campaign for reparations is going to succeed. And I'm worried about the 
time and energy that's going to go into a feudal movement. Second, there are the administrative difficulties. And third, there's the, and most importantly, the question of need. I want people to get what they need, no matter what were the origins of that need. All right. Thank you. So it's really clear where the two of you disagree on this particular issue. I, I think it would be useful to get a sense of where you agree at the outset. So in the sense of the need for the call for reparations, in a sense being reflecting a correct diagnosis of the issue, in other words, recognition of the wrong, the, the two of you are not in any way disputing the notion of the wrong having been committed um, wounds having been inflicted, the wounds being long-lasting. You both agree that that's the reality, I, I, I would assume. I'll, I'll ask you to go first with that, Cornell. Uh, if we think about the fact that human uh, chattel, capital, uh, as in enslaved Africans, uh, essentially laid the foundation for America to become an economic uh, superpower. The small town that I'm from in the low country of South Carolina in the 1700s uh, was one of the wealthiest corners of the U.S. as a consequence of the cultivation of rice uh, by Africans. Uh, cotton uh, literally increased by 400% in, in the main, uh, in the majority of the uh, 1800s, uh, of course, cultivated by Africans providing the wealth base for this country. And when we think about the fact that slavery literally created the economic foundation of the country, uh, after slavery uh, ended, we have all manner of neo-slavery from the convict leasing system to uh, Jim Crow, uh, the present and ongoing era of mass incarceration, the uh, housing segregation that we've seen all across the, the country, literal looting and plundering of black wealth, and of course, uh, the, the depra deprivation of uh, freedoms and civil liberties and civil rights for the majority of the country's history. That is to say, 77% of America's history, black folks had literally spent uh, in, in a condition, a formal condition, of anything but a first-class citizen, as in being second-class citizens as a consequence of slavery. So there's an economic cost and price uh, to that. Uh, but the moral cost, the psychic cost, the racial trauma embedded and inscribed on our genes is real and calculable. I, and an, another writer on this issue 20 years ago, uh, when, when the issue had less prominence, Randall Robinson wrote a book calling it, the title was The Debt. And he everything that you just described, he summed up as a debt. And I think you, you would agree with that. And I, I, I just want to check in with Randall Kennedy. The, the 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 notion of there being a debt, the notion of there being a wrong, the notion of there of there being a, a setback for for a part of the population as a result of slavery, you you don't dispute that. You're, I, I I assume. No, I don't dispute it. And by the way, I'm from South Carolina too. I was born <laughs> in 1954 in Columbia, South Carolina, when the Constitution of South Carolina decreed segregation. So and and you know. Um, that's right. We, we live in a society that has been saturated with racism and the scars of racism, the scars of racial violence, the scars of racial brutality are all about. So on that, we are com in complete uh, agreement. Um, but there's more to be said. Uh, we live in a society that is scarred by all sorts of inequities and all sorts of depredations. I think of American Indians. I think of, you know, all sorts of people. Um, my folks were refugees from the Jim Crow South. My folks were probably, um, were, were, were probably enslaved. But for various reasons, for various reasons, a lot of hard work, a lot of luck, I'm doing pretty well. And the question is, right now, should our polity try to funnel resources to me as opposed to somebody, let's say, whose folks swam across the Rio Grande 10 years ago or somebody whose folks are, you know, in need? Uh, and, and again, whatever the need is, I, I would be more, I would be, I would prefer our energies to be focused on 
addressing the problem of need as opposed to trying to address the problems of crimes in history. I'm, you know, the, the crimes of history are there. There's no two ways about it. It's a tragedy. I'm not sure it's a tragedy that we can ever catch up with, however. Hmm. Cornell, I heard that sigh and that hmm. What's your, what are you thinking? I think be- because Randall and I are both South Carolinians and uh, the other points of commonality, uh, his metaphor really struck me uh, in a very powerful way. Um, but in a way uh, that prompts some measure of disagreement. It, we're both from South Carolina. Uh, we're both graduates of Yale Law School. We both teach at Harvard. But our aberrational and somewhat um, exceptional professional trajectories don't take us away from the central founding harm of this country, point one. Point two, I think Randall is correct that there are a great many tragedies in this country, a great many uh, victims of America's uh, injustices, uh, certainly Native Americans, African Americans, uh, Japanese Americans, um, yeah, L- L- Latinos. Uh, the, the amount of r- racial and ethnic harm in this country is incalculable. That being said, America has already extended reparations to Japanese Americans interned uh, during World War II, already extended reparations to Native Americans, already extended reparations to uh, uh, indigenous people as in the Lutes in Alaska. There are numerous examples of this country extending reparations to a variety of victims. The question we have to ask ourselves is why do we mute and render silent the voices of our ancestors when it comes to reparations for black folk. In other words, when we articulate the need for reparations, the righteousness, the righteous call for reparations, somehow it's impractical. It's, uh, it, it is uh, found wanting on the scale of injustices in this country. The mere fact that we are exceptionalizing the debate about reparations when it comes to black folks speaks to the depth and breadth of systemic racism in this country. In other words, when it comes to to black folks, the magnitude of the math debilitates the morality of the rationale. And that's quite simply not the case. We've done this with respect to other groups, and it can't be that we can't have rational, reasonable discussion and call for reparations uh, for black folk in the way that we've done for so many other groups in this country. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's jump right back into our discussion. I agree with you, Cornell, that an appreciable amount, maybe a considerable amount of the pushback against reparations has to do with racism. I mean, I think that there are a good many people who basically say with respect to black people, you know, shut up, what are you complaining about? I think that there's some people who would probably say that with respect to slavery, well, slavery was bad in certain ways, but at least it got you away from Africa. I mean, that, you know, that, that is part of the, of the discussion in our country. And so I, I, I agree with you that we have to keep an eye on the problem of racism. I think we have to keep an eye on some other things too, though. Let's talk about administrative difficulties, especially if we're talking about cash payments to individuals. So one thing that concerns me, again, I'm, I'm from South Carolina. I think that my people were probably enslaved, but you know, there were, there were free black people in the age of slavery, uh, you know, what happens to them? There were um, black slave owners 
in the age of slavery? I mean, to what extent do we really want to, you know, get down in genealogies? What about black people who came to the United States after the age of slavery? Do we really want to, dis- do, do, how, how much do we want to distinguish different sorts of black people? I'll, I'll stop there. I'd like to hear a response. I think you raise some hmm, uh, interesting questions with respect to the administration of cash payments. But let us know this. Let, let's start with the, the whole matter of uh, black folks who are the descendants of uh, free blacks versus enslaved um, Africans. Black folks who are the descendant of free blacks those free Africans live beside enslaved Africans in the midst of a slaveocracy. Uh, thereafter, their ancestors lived in uh, the midst of Jim Crow, in the midst of segregated housing, in uh, the mix uh, and the midst of racial terrorism. So, disaggregating the descendants of free blacks from others, I, I think, is somewhat difficult. But you have people like. Uh, William Darity, who make the case that reparations can be extended to those who are the descendants of enslaved Africans, who at least have one such ancestor. The point being here is we have in this country reparatory schemes, reparations extended to people based upon them being related to uh, victims of the original harm. But in this instance, note this, Randall, that the original harm continues into the into the present, point one. Point two, how is it that Germany can extend billions of dollars of reparations to the, the victims and descendants of the Holocaust, but the United States, this great superpower, can't get itself together in terms of the accounting to at least have a conversation, a commission on reparations? And so this whole matter of paralyzing the discussion as a consequence of our inability to conceive the mechanics of the administration and the accounting of the administration, I should be a conceptual and analytic non-starter. The point being here is uh, we cannot become obsessed with the how such that we don't start with the why to proceed to figure out the how. L- listen, I'm all with a commission. I'm all for discussion. After all, I'm, I'm you know, we're talking right now as we've talked right. in the past. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think that this should be off the table at all. And I'm glad that it is on the table so that we're discussing it. In the discussion, however, at some point, if we're talking about, you know, allocating funds, if we're talking about allocating resources, administrative problems do arise. And, you know, it's we, they, they do have to be faced. And I, I guess I'm questioning whether... Some of these administrative problems are so difficult and so potentially divisive that they bring into question, you know, whether they're worth it. And then finally, again, I'd like to hear your response. I think at present, we have many scandals in America. We have this rich country in which there are um, people in you know all over the country who are um, suffering. They 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 are needy, and what I'm saying is, you know, you're saying, well, let's take a look back and let's you know give reparations to those who were in, who are the descendants of the folks who were enslaved. I'm saying. Let's take a look at everybody who is in need and address everybody who is in need, no matter what the history of that need is. And and so why isn't that the way to go? Why isn't distributive justice the way to go as opposed to reparative justice? Can I just get clarification, Randall? In, in talking about everybody in need, are you are you talking about African Americans in need or 
everybody in need. Everybody, including white people. You know, there, 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 there are plenty of white people in need. And here, I think we have to grapple with the complications of history. I mean, the fact that my folks were refugees from the Jim Crow South. I have lived a better life, a more enriched life than people who were privileged when my parents had to flee South Carolina. And that's just a, you know, it's it's an ironic thing. I'm not I'm not saying it was a, you know, that that they're having to flee was a good thing. I but you know, history is just full of paradoxes. The fact of the matter is that the discipline, the 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 incredible discipline that they uh, embodied has helped me to live better than some of the people who did not have to undergo that discipline. So again, I don't need it. What about the, you know? What about these poor people? I don't know. White people in Appalachia and other places, Native Americans, Latino Americans. I don't care who you are. If you are in need, our country should try to do something to alleviate that need. Why isn't that a better way of going than trying to, you know? It, but it it doesn't say anything about it doesn't say anything about the history of slavery. That that sort of response. I'm sorry. Absolutely. That would not say anything about the history of slavery. No, I don't think that's true. No, I don't think that's true because the history of slavery and the history of Jim Crow, the history of racial repression, is why uh, there are proportion. You know, in terms of proportions, is why there's such a large proportion of African Americans who are in need. And and but but but, but for Randall, let let let, let me. Might I note a couple of things? Sure. Because the very the very examples that you've lifted up, um, your incredible, compelling, inspiring family narrative is really a testament to what I'm arguing. Here's what I'll, I know. When you say your family fled the Jim Crow South uh, for the rel- relative freedom uh, elsewhere in terms of the Great Migration, Right. Uh, as, as and not that long ago, by the way, let me just interrupt. We're not talking mm-hmm. about 100 years ago. My parents fled the Jim Crow South in the mid 19th, in the, in the, in the late 1950s. So we're not right. talking about a long time ago. Go on. I'm sorry. Yes. But your family narrative as a facet and a reflection of the Great Migration, as so well described by uh, Isabel Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. They did so, as did so many families, as a consequence of the second-class treatment that they, uh, the treatment they received as second-class citizens in states like South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, the Deep South, and the racial terrorism. And this racial terrorism is a reflection of what happened during slavery, which is to say the slave patrols, the night riders that gave rise to Southern law enforcement and the Ku Klux Klan and the racial terrorism that literally chased black folks out of the South into the North. The point being here is the premise of reparations is literally a part of the genesis story of your family, point one. Point two, you cannot address that racially specific harm with just race neutral neutral policy of prescriptions. The point being here is reparative justice is necessary along with distributive justice. We're not talking about pitting poor families in Appalachia and elsewhere against black folks who are suffering the consequences uh, of slavery and neo-slavery and its aftermath in the present. We're not pitting these groups against one another, point two. Point three we're not pitting the past against the present. This whole notion that we have to achieve um, a problem-free democracy in the present in order to contemplate reparations for the future, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. This country addresses p- past harms every day, right? So in other words, in the wake of 9-11, 9-11 happened. There were victims of, terror, of, of terrorism in this country, Uh, The United States created a fund to not only support the victims of terrorism, but to support the airline industry that was affected by that act of terrorism. In other words, it happened, and this country responded to the past, a past event, 
in terms of, of making victims whole relative to the present and putting them in a position to face the future. When it comes to a $10 trillion wealth gap that came about largely as a consequence of the deprivation of liberty and the brutalization of black bodies, we have to address the past in the present in order to prepare us to march into the future. I agree with much of what you say. You know, you use the term political terrorism. That's right. Uh, My father uh, escaped, uh, escaped, escaped terrible injury and and, and called my mother from Washington, D.C. and said, get the kids. We got to move. He was, it, it, it was terrorism. That's right. And it wasn't that long ago. One thing I might add, by the way, I mean, you know, we talk about we talk about reparations for slavery. A long time ago, Boris Bitker made the argument uh, in the case for black reparations that, you know, uh, an an argument for reparations would put uh, Jim Crow racial oppression at the center as opposed to slavery. Because if you put Jim Crow racial oppression as opposed to slavery at the center, uh, you know, there, there, there's still millions of people alive right now who suffered from Jim Crow oppression. But let me just say one last, let me just, so it's again, um, again, Cornell, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not your enemy, but I no, am, no. <laughs> but I am, I am concerned about, so for instance, you say we're not, you don't have to pit. No, you don't have to pit, but the fact of the matter is, the United States of America has lots of, you know, there, there, there are lots of things on the radar screen. And, you know, allocating resources, you, you, you can't do everything. There is going to be a politics around this. You're not going to be able to do all of the things that you would like to do. And so it seems to me that for a a reformer, I think of myself as a reformer, I think of you as a reformer, you know, what are our priorities? If everything was open, if we didn't have to worry about a scarcity of attention, a scarcity of resources, then frankly, I probably wouldn't be on this show. But we do have to worry about a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of attention, a scarcity of political will. And so we do have to think about priorities. And it's, it's there that I suppose is our, probably our biggest difference. So Cornell and Randall, let me, let me ask a question that, that goes a little bit deeper then and maybe steps back at the same time to look at some of the principles involved. So you mentioned uh, Cornell the 911 uh, a 9/11 fund being established to as you said make people whole and I, I look at as we said earlier you mentioned earlier there have been other times when the US government stepped up and so after the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War ultimately by the 1980s um, the uh, or actually even earlier than that uh, the, the government realized the wrong had that had been done and came up with a compensation program but it ended up paying people who had been interned $20,000 each in reparations. That did not make anybody whole. And in terms of the debt that we were talking about before, there's really no practical number that can be produced that can make anybody whole. So I'm wondering whether you actually are talking about the principle of, of having to pay something in order to say something about slavery, as opposed to the principle of help, helping people catch up with with payments. So can, can you take that on when you talk about what the purpose is? Yeah. Yes. So very well stated. And let me be clear. There is an attempt to make people, as in Black people, the descendants of slaves, whole as in erasing the racial wealth gap or substantially closing it. There's an attempt at at that, number one. Number two, the math becomes a means by which of sending a moral message. That is to say, we recognize not merely slavery, but the continuation of slavery from 1865, from the the end of, of slavery 
into the present. And that number three, this is an attempt to help bring the country together and to take us forward. Let us know this. When it came to Japanese Americans interned in World War II, the payments made in the 80s with the second set of payments, right? In other words, there was an attempt at reparations before the payments made in the 80s. They were deemed to be insufficient. And then we had a second uh, set of payments. And again, those payments were insufficient because you, you, it's hard to compensate people for the loss of liberty. But when it comes to black folks, we have the loss of liberty, the brutalization of black bodies, the literally the little desecration of the aspirations the stated aspirations of our Constitution. So an attempt must be made. And the last point here, note this, and this goes to Randall's point about um, priorities. Japanese Americans received some modicum of reparations in the 80s, the late 80s. The following year, Representative John Conyers introduced legislation to create a reparations commission. The Black Caucus, the Congressional Black Caucus, supported Japanese Americans in getting reparations. They've supported other groups in getting reparations. So why is it when it comes to us, we have to put our case for reparations in a different administrative box, a different moral box, a different economic box, a different moral philosophical box? The point being here is it's not merely the the racism of others. I would argue it's also this notion that we have to moderate our views. And last point, let's go back to Frederick Douglass, who moderated his positions on reparations back in the day. And he lived to say he regretted taking a more moderate position as opposed to giving black folks 40 acres and a mule. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. Our mission is to restore critical thinking and facts and reason and civility to American public discourse. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. I want to go back to a phrase that came up, uh, you you used at um, uh, Cornell, 40 acres and a mule. Mm -hmm. For people who don't know the story of where that phrase comes from, could, could one of you jump in and just catch people up on that and talk a little bit about what it implied at the time that... Uh, that the phrase was 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 basically coined in history. Sure, General William Sherman in the uh, latter days of the Civil War met with a group of African American uh, leaders uh, in Georgia about the destitution of Black folks, uh, along with this, the um, Secretary of War, and came up with this uh, a field order, Field Order Fifteen, to allocate essentially 40 acres and a mule to um, um, black people along the coast of South Carolina uh, and Georgia. And that the realization of that uh, never came to be. I mean, there was some land distribution, a significant amount of land distribution, but uh, black folks ultimately did not, were not able to hold on to that land. Um, and certainly, the promise of Field Order 15 was not realized. Economists have essentially taken that promise and extrapolated that in terms of what 40 acres and a mule would represent today, and it would be well over a trillion dollars. But the point being here is what was represented in Field Order 15 was also represented in Thomas Jefferson's sentiment, namely that black folks were owed something, Uh, The founder of the Quakers uh, also uh, thought that black people were owed something. Frederick Douglass has said as much. There have been many people who essentially laid down the claim 
that black people deserve land, deserve something for the robbery of their freedom uh, and the desecration and brutalization of their bodies. I, I, I agree with the description. Um, it's actually worse, however, than uh, what Cornell said because um, the, the promise that was made to, to, the, to the black people uh, was actually torn up and Confederates got the land. The, and in fact, black people at the time said to the Union, we were with you. We were with you. And you're going you're gonna to abandon us and give the property to these people who you were fighting? And they were devastated by that. But that's exactly what happened. It was a terrible, it was a terrible abandonment. Of, of of the freed people, of course, it was just it was just one of many abandonments of African Americans that has happened throughout uh, American history. And and where I think the message of the story of the anecd- of the situation is is relevant to this discussion is that at the time of emancipation, whether you want to call it so called or not, but emancipation, slavery being made illegal. There was a recognition that just being told, okay, go, without anything in a bank account, without any property, uh, was not a fair starting point. That to get going, that, that that the free enslaved people would need a little capital to do something, to, to get going. And as you say, that was denied. But to me, I'm bringing it into the conversation to ask, was there a rep, a rep uh, in terms of timing, we've talked about too many years have passed, but at the time, was there a recognition that reparations were actually justified and called for in very much in the terms we're talking about now, which is we're going to deliver capital to the victims? There was a fight. There were some radical Republicans, most particularly Thaddeus Stevens, who recognized that the newly freed people would need, you know, w- would need more than mere freedom. There was a Confederate general who, when asked, you know, well, what's happened with uh, emancipation, who said, well, they've gotten, quote, nothing but freedom. In fact, uh, one of Eric Foner's wonderful books has that title, Nothing But Freedom. Um, there were people who recognized that there would be a need for some more, you know, reparationist type support. O.O. O. Howard, one of uh, one of mm-hmm. Sherman's generals, one of the, the founder of Howard University, uh, Howard University was very much on this and 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 argued in favor of allocating resources for the freed people. So that was very much needed, as you know, and 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 that's been recognized over time. Again. Um, you know, that, that, that has been part of the freedom story, just like, frankly, affirmative action. I mean, affirmative action has a, certainly in its origins, had a very strong reparationist, um, tinge to it, more than a tinge. That was, that was its, that was its main propulsion. Um, so, you know, reparations, warrants being in the discussion. Um, Again, I think, though, there is the question at this point of, you know, what are your priorities? And I don't want to repeat myself in saying that as as strong as the arguments for reparations are, um, in, in, in a society that has never been as diverse as it is now, in a society that's in the 21st century, you know what do we need? I think we need a a a a reformist politics that tries to embrace everyone, that tries to make a potential beneficiary out of all of the you know many groups that constitute American society. You know, what, what, Randall. One thing I might note here is a couple. Well, a couple of things. This notion that the diversity, the increasing diversity of the country mutes the ability to call for racially specific um, remediation, reparations policy, um, I think may underestimate uh, the capacity of this country. 
uh, the moral capacity of this country and the policy capacity of this country. Note this. So if in the wake of George Floyd's death, the Black Lives Matter movement, as reflected in 25 plus million Americans across 550 jurisdictions in this country, taking to the streets, the majority of these Black Lives Matter protests, in the majority of them, the majority of the people were not black. There was a multiracial, multi-ethnic response to a racially specific harm, namely the, the uh, police brutality in this country. The fact of the matter is that we need not compromise defining the problem in order to get support for addressing the problem. And so the point being is, if we were to address um, sexual violence in this country, it would be impossible for us to talk about it without recognizing the fact that women are most often the victims of sexual violence. Similarly, when it comes to talking about economic violence in this country, we have to speak about it with a certain racial specificity because of the racial violence literally inscribed, encoded in the Constitution uh, and that resonates, reverberates throughout American history into the present. The point being here is that we don't have to homogenize this discussion of racial reparations in terms of, well, let's address all harms at once for all people in order to be able to talk about the racially specific harm visited upon black people. And again, I'm saying that as a friend, as a colleague, uh, by no means um, uh, an opponent or enemy. No, I understand you. And that you, you bring up an interesting point. You've put your finger on something that that touches me deeply. And frankly, you know, you, what you just said to me was maybe I'm not, maybe I'm shortchanging the capacities of the country. And maybe you're correct because frankly, in the last few years, um, I do, uh, the United States of America uh, has gone down in my books. That's right. I have less esteem for my country because of what has happened in the last several years. I do have a, I have lowered expectations. Uh, I, I, I guess I really, I don't uh, have as much faith in uh, America uh, as I used to. And frankly, I hope that you, I, I, I hope that you're right. I hope that you're right. I hope that I am wrong on this one. Cornell, do you, do you anticipate getting a check someday? I had a grandfather, in terms of hoping to get a check, I had a grandfather by the name of the Reverend Pompey Lavallee, who was born, a great-grandfather, who was born a slave. Um, he lived into the 40s. My great-grandmother made a quilt from his pants called the Britches Cloth Quilt. My great-grandfather, who was a slave, slept under it as a man. I slept under the same quilt as a boy. My great-grandfather lived to see at least the beginning, or at least the um, uh, Smith versus Allwright. He, he, he lived to see at least some of the foundation being laid for the modern civil rights movement. I'd like to believe that I'm going to live to see um, checks being cut, but more importantly, reparatory justice broadly conceived, broadly defined, realized in this country, and the racial wealth gap in this country bridged. And I can be accused of being an unrepentant optimist, but I would note here that the folks who have most advanced civil rights and social justice in this country in the main, did not have a strong empirical or historical case for their optimism and their hope. But as I've long believed, you know, hope is not empirically demonstrated, it's morally chosen. I gotta believe that. We have an interesting thing that's happening here. I mean, I guess you're more the optimist. I think that given the racial fractiousness, given the racial resentment, given this just the, 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 the proliferation of racism in the United States, it's, that's one of the things that makes me think that the reparations campaign is, is f 
frankly doomed. I think that there is more hopefulness in the thinking of, let's say, an A. Philip Randolph or in the thinking of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. in his later period. I mean, poor people's campaign, uh, you know, and frankly, you know, maybe that's unrealistic too. But I, I, again, my sense is there's, there's more of a chance of getting the big army that we're going to need for any major uh, resource allocation. I think there's a better chance of getting that big army with the big tent, with the not race-specific, with the more universal language framework than with race specificity. That, that's, that's where I guess I'm basically, that's my bottom line, I suppose, at this moment. I hear that, but I, I, here's one thing I, I have to have, it's a question I have to pose. How is it that our generation, beneficiaries, children of affirmative action and the civil rights movement, how is it that we get to be less aspirational than our forebears. In other words, the case, the, the, the case for optimism with respect to the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act would have to be more pessimistic than the case for reparations. Right? So in other words, black when black people would be like we, we talk about uh, police brutality in 2021, but when we look at the lynching that raged through the better part of the 20th, 20th century, uh, you know, it, the point being here is just because I believe that, you know, we, we, we need to be hopeful, we need to be optimistic, does not mean that there's not a hi- historical basis for believing that we can secure reparations, as in restitution, cash payments, based upon the successes of the past. And the, po- and the other part of this is, can anyone really credibly claim that we're going to erase the racial wealth gap in this country without an infusion of real capital? Right? In other words, when black families, when, when white families have 10 times the wealth of black families and there's a $10 trillion wealth gap, how do we talk about that without talking about the racial specificity of that uh, in ways that appeal to the broader society but also in ways that address the specificity and the surgical depth uh, and um, the surgical depth of the harm. It's a huge question. And Randall, I have to tell you that this is going to be your last chance to speak. It's really your concluding remarks. And then I'll come back to, uh, to Cornell to have a concluding thought as well. But go for it, please. Okay, sure. I guess part of what's going on, we have, you know, competing aspirations, um, the race-specific uh, campaign that Cornell has in mind, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of decency in it. Um, I, I I just have my you know my questions about it that I've already are articulated. My aspiration, and I don't think it's a lesser aspiration, but I think it's somewhat different aspiration. My aspiration is for a society that addresses all people in need. Um, regardless of the history that has brought them to that need. I think that's a, a larger framework, and I think it is a framework that might be able to um, avoid, to some extent, the racial fractiousness in our society. And I guess that's where I'll plant my flag for the moment. All right. Thank you. Cornell, <laughs> Well, last uh, word for you. I'll just simply say, as always, it's great being in conversation uh, with Randall Kennedy. I always learn a lot, and um, he makes me more aspirational. I'll simply (laughs) note this, that racial specificity by no means suggests racial exclusivity, right? In other words, we can talk about the racial harms in our society in specific terms, in historically informed terms, in empirically informed terms, uh, they're also aspirational in ways that bring people together and heal this country, point one. Point two, we can do so in this moment. The point being here is when we look at reparations in the context of Japanese Americans uh, back in the 80s, 
uh, in the midst of a Reaganomic uh, era. The same, some of the, many of the problems that we are grappling with today, we grapple with them, and we nevertheless engage in a reparatory justice debate, issued checks, and recognize a harm. In this moment, in the midst of all that we are going through, we have the moral capacity, we have the economic capacity, we have the civic capacity as a country in the midst of this racial reckoning to address the past, perpetuating the present, and that may well haunt us in the future unless we issue checks, unless we engage in restitution, and most importantly, unless we recognize the harm that we visited upon black folks uh, in a way that really brings together the whole of the country. Well, Randall Kennedy and Cornell William Brooks, I just want to say um, I learned from listening to you, from listening to you agree and to listening to you disagree. And I'm sure the rest of the folks out there who have heard this conversation uh, have the same experience I did. So I want to thank both of you for taking part in this Intelligence Squared U.S. program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, which was recorded on March 5th, 2021. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.